Excuse me a minute while I... Um, well, that was easier than I thought. All right. Um, normally, I don't preach from my laptop, but I left my Bible and my notes at home on my desk. So I have one of these Bibles and I have my notes. I'm thankful for the cloud today. Um, I want to begin this morning, um, or even before I begin, I just want to say that we at Del Cerro, we love your church. Uh, it's a privilege to be here. I've wanted to... Uh, when you're a preacher, there's churches in town you want to visit, but you can't because you're working every Sunday. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to be able to work here today just, just to worship with you, to hear you sing, to see your faces. And um, y'all have a real family vibe going. That is a, that's, a, that's a gift from God. You should thank the Lord for that. Uh, we also pray for your church regularly. Pray for your elders. Pray for Jimmy. Um, and I'll tell you this, when a visitor comes to our church for the first time, and I don't know if y'all do this or not, probably do, but if someone comes to our church for the first time, they're new to town, um, they're looking for a church body to gather with, I'll, I'll, I'll ask them, what churches have you visited? And then as I kind of get to know them a little bit better, um, I will dis- kind of discern whether or not they, they kind of fit our church. Uh, we have kind of a unique liturgy. We're very liturgical, I guess you'd say. And um, I always point them to, to the hill. I always ask them, have you visited the hill yet? Because I know that they will be well taken care of if and when they come here. So thank you all for, for being that type of church that honors the Lord in that way. You all may not know this, but um, I, before I moved down here, I cold called Jimmy. So this was 2018, um, before I accepted the job at Del Cerro. And... Um, I think he had just been here for a few months at that time. Uh, but I met with him because I wanted to know more about La Mesa. I wanted to know more about Del Cerro Church, if he knew anything about it. Um, but I met with him because your church was on the Nine Marks website. Uh, and so I went to, went to your church website, listened to Jimmy's preaching, found, okay, whoever this guy is, he's a faithful expositor. He, he, he preaches God's word. Um, so I thought, well, that's good. Uh, so I met with him across the street over there at Starbucks, I just kind of picked his brain. Uh, I, I was looking for reassurance that if I took a job at a church that was very much a revitalization, um, that I would have a brother in town that I could call for, for advice, for encouragement, and he has been that. Uh, I, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't alone, and, uh, and he has, he's been a good friend uh, since, since then, before I even moved down here, before I even took the job. So there, um, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for you, and I, I pray that our partnership with you in the gospel uh, will continue. Uh, We are going to read from Genesis chapter 3 today, Genesis 3, just verses 1 through 7. And if you're wondering, did Jimmy make him do this text? He didn't. Um, This is is my elders said, when you go over there, preach that sermon you preached on May 18th. I was like, what, what was that one? Went and looked it up, and this is the one. So that's the only reason this is it's not some secret message for you. This is just God's word from a, a sermon that our elders enjoyed. So uh, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read it first, and then I'll pray. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to be one to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask for his help. Lord, you know why you put this in your Bible? You know, Lord, why you have gathered us here today under your word. You know why our church is going through Genesis. Your spirit was with me, Lord, as as I 
study this text, and your spirit is here with us now as your gathered church. So Lord, I pray that you would, as we look to your word and hear your word, you would give us understanding that in your mercy, your people would hear more from your word than I'm even able to say. Give us understanding, change our hearts, help us to be satisfied in you above all else. And Lord, give us the warnings that we need to hear and the encouragements that we need as well. In Christ's name, amen. Well, our church has been working our way through Genesis, uh, and so normally you would already have the, the, the setting, the context, but I'm going to give you, I'll catch you up a little bit on, on what the setting is here as we approach Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 2, God has set up a hierarchy. God is Lord over all. He's the creator. He set everything into motion. And then he has, he has appointed Adam, the first man, as his king who will rule over all things underneath the Lord. And he has also brought a, man, a woman from the man and made, made her for the man, and she is meant to rule with him over creation. And then you see there in Genesis chapter 2 that the beasts, that's all the fish and the birds and all the things on the ground, the beasts were subjected to both the man and the woman. So that's sort of the, the hierarchy of creation that God has put into place. And in that happy place where the man and his bride are, are living in the presence of God, they lived in a state of, of, of what we could call blissful naivete. So, so here we are at the beginning of chapter 3, and we're introduced to a new character, this serpent. And the serpent, Moses, the writer of Genesis, led along by the Spirit, the serpent is, uh, the, Moses rather, tells us that this guy's different than the man and the woman. First of all, he's not naked and unashamed and blissfully naive as they are. No, this, this one has shrewdness, kind of a street smarts about him. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, He is more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. So, so Moses is setting up this story, and somehow this craftiness, this shrewdness, this street smartness, is going to play into the story, isn't it? He's front-loading the story. He's a good storyteller. It's also a true story. Notice also about this serpent that he is a beast of the field. Did you see that? Sometimes we overlook that. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Just say he is a beast of the field, and he is a creature that the Lord God has made. You see that as well, other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. So he's made by God. He's a beast of the field, and, and, and being created and dwelling on earth and being a beast means that he's subject to Adam. Don't miss that. That's really important. In, in, in verse 1, he's, he's supposed to be subject to Adam. In Genesis 1, God says that he made man to have dominion over all the creatures of the earth, including those beasts of the field. So this is the serpent is a beast of the field, and therefore he has been assigned by God to be subject to to the king, Adam. There's a problem, isn't there? This particular beast of the field has decided, for whatever reason, we'll talk about that in a moment, but he's decided not to be subject to this king or humanity in general. And by not being subject to the man and the woman, this beast shows us he is, he's already showing us he's in rebellion against God's order. We see that in verse 1, when the serpent goes to the woman and speaks in such a way as to deceive her. God's good order is being challenged here. The beast's goal is to lead the woman. The woman will then lead the man, and so the man will be led away from God. That's, that's, that's his motivation here. That's an inversion, though, isn't it? It's an inversion of how God designed things, and this is where the trouble will come from, when God's order is, is turned upside down by God's creatures. The big, big question that many of us ask, and, and, and if you've had a, if you've, I mean, a 10-year-old has this question when they read this, what exactly 
put it into this beast's mind to rebel against God. Have you had that question before? We know from the rest of Scripture that this serpent isn't just a serpent. He's not just a snake. Revelation 20 tells us that the dragon beast, again, later a beast, uh, is that ancient serpent who is the devil, Satan. Jesus tells us in John chapter 8 that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Jesus says when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Who's Jesus talking about? This guy, this serpent. That lying from the beginning part, Jesus is talking about Genesis 3, the beginning. The devil is either this serpent, and they're one and the same, or he's somehow controlling this serpent, this still doesn't answer a question, does it? Doesn't doesn't tell us how he came to be a liar and the father of lies. Seems pretty clear from Genesis 1, as you've read Genesis 1, I'm sure, that everything that God made was good. Right. Good. Good. It says it over and over again in Genesis 1. Good, good. And then after humanity was made, it's very good. So how does something good become something rebellious and deceitful? And if you think I'm going to solve that mystery for you today, I'm going to go ahead and disappoint you. The Bible does not answer that question. And I believe that that is intentional. Think about it. In the same way that Adam and his wife were to trust God's provision of wisdom and knowledge in the garden... I believe we are to trust that what God has revealed to us in Scripture is sufficient. We know, or we've been told, what we need to know. We have what we need as Christians to be faithful to God, to trust His sovereign wisdom and to worship Him. St. Augustine says it this way, he says, we as Christians, we must learn how not to know. What cannot be known. Let me say that again, because it makes you think, doesn't it? We must learn how not to know what cannot be known. That is, we must learn to be content with what God has revealed. And we must learn to trust His wisdom and to trust that He is good, as we sang. We must learn to trust His wisdom when it comes to those things that remain hidden from us. So how did it come to be that Satan conspired to tempt Adam and his wife? What was his motivation? What has brought about this, let's just call it what it is, what has brought about this evil into God's very good creation? The text doesn't say. But the text does tell us something. And what the text emphasizes, we need to see clearly. And I hope you have your Bibles open. We're just going to go verse by verse through here. So Genesis 3, verse 1, we need to see clearly that the serpent is a beast. I said that a thousand times now. The serpent is a beast. And Adam was supposed to have dominion over this beast. But Adam, King Adam, failed to have dominion. And in his failure, he allowed the inversion of of God's hierarchical, good hierarchical order to take place. He allowed the flip-flop of what God had made. So let's examine now, moving on from that question, let's examine now the temptation and the deception itself. If you read the Puritans, which some of you like to do, and if, if you're like me, you find it very difficult because of the way they write, but the Puritans were very good at helping us understand the nature of sin and how to avoid it. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to do a little Puritan study here, a little Puritan exploration. Let's examine the temptation and the deception. The serpent, who's a beast, begins his attack by rebelling against God's created order. We saw that. He doesn't stop just by attacking the order. This deception of his comes with a perversion of the truth. So look at the very first words from the serpent's mouth in verse 1. He said to the woman... Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? All right. What is the truth? The truth is that God had provided all 
sorts of good things for the man and the woman. God had created an entire garden of delights for Adam and his wife. In fact, that's what the word Eden in Hebrew means. It means a place of luxury, of abundance, of delight. An entire garden forest of fruit trees are available to them. That's the reality. But the serpent is questioning God's goodness and God's provision. Another way to hear his question is something like this, to put it in the modern Did God seriously make all of these wonderful-looking fruit trees and then tell you you can't eat any of them? Read between the lines of this question, and what do you see the serpent saying about God? Woman, your so-called God is a stingy jerk. The serpent is questioning God's goodness by questioning God's word. And that is the essence of demonic temptation. Or any temptation, which is all demonic. Yet the woman doesn't know this. She's new to the world, right? She's never dealt with temptation before. She's never dealt with deception before. And so she's drawn into the conversation. Look at verse 2. Look at what she says. She speaks back to him. We may eat of the trees of the garden. Good answer, Eve. You may eat of the trees of the garden. God has provided an abundance for you. You're allowed to eat of it. Praise God. Now turn and walk away. Verse 3, though, does not. That's not what happens. Verse 3, but. But. We may eat the trees of the garden, but... And this is where it starts to go badly. She doesn't have to say anything else. But, but, she does. But, God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So I want you to just get a framework here. The serpent starts the conversation by questioning God's word. And he is, without really saying it, Though he is saying it, he's inviting the woman, he's inviting her to subject God's word to her own judgment. And that's what she does. She gives in. She takes a step closer to the serpent. She takes a step closer to his, his false view of the word. And what does she do? She overly restricts God's word. Do you see her restriction, her additional restriction? She says, neither shall you touch it. That's her addition. God didn't say that. She said that. She added that. But you can see what's happening. The serpent has already succeeded in his efforts to get her to doubt God's goodness. He's he's prompted her to see God's good and perfect law as a restriction on her. God's law is, is meant to highlight God's provision for us and His goodness to us. God's law is good for us. It helps us to see God's love. It helps us to know what to delight in. That's what the law is meant for. That's what the law was meant for in the garden. That's what the law was meant for in the wilderness. That's what the law is meant for us today. God's law is meant to highlight His provision. And that's how how David can say in Psalm 19 this, this strange thing. When you read Psalm 19, you think this is odd. But think about what David's doing when he says in Psalm 19 that the law is, more, is to be more desired than the most precious gold. That it is sweeter than honey. How can he say that? Because the law points us to what will ultimately satisfy us, God Himself. The restrictions are not better than gold. Restrictions are not sweeter than honey. God is. And if the law is teaching us and showing us how to delight in God, then you can say with David those things. But the serpent has introduced this wretched idea that the law is a restriction. And that if the woman had seen it coming, 
If the woman had known what the serpent was doing, and if she had better understood what God's law was meant for, she would have said this. God has permitted me to eat of the tree of life. And in order to protect that precious gift that He has given me, He's commanded that I not eat of this tree of knowledge of good and evil. But God loves me. He provides for me. He protects me. Isn't He good? And serpent, I want you to know, I don't deserve this grace of God. I don't deserve what He's entrusted to me. I don't deserve all of this endless goodness that He's given me. I am made of a bone. And my husband is made out of dirt. But God entrusted the entire world to us, even the beasts, even you. He's entrusted all of it to our care, and He's provided all that we need. Who are we that God is mindful of us? She doesn't say that. She didn't walk away when she should have. She didn't say what she should have said. She's already, she reveals with her words that she's already begun to be lured into the temptation. She's allowed the serpent's words to dance around in her heart. And you know that feeling, don't you? That temptation. And so she's thinking. She's thinking, maybe, maybe, maybe he's right. Just maybe, maybe God is restrictive. Maybe God is holding back from me. Maybe what I'm not allowed to have is better than what I've been given. And in her answer to the serpent, Eve has shown herself to be vulnerable. Her, her heart might not be totally satisfied with what God has given her. Serpent has turned her eyes away from the goodness of the provision, God's gifts, and he has narrowed her focus on this, this, this restraint and what is forbidden. You see the danger of this? This is, friends, this is dangerous territory for any of us. To lose sight of God's gifts and focus on what we do not have is dangerous. Sin begins with desire, as James tells us. And desire begins with a dissatisfaction with what you have, what God has given you. So, so we see here, even before the temptation has been conceived, that there is a, a, a fissure, a little crack in, in the woman's contentment. She's not reveling in God's provision. Her eyes are wandering, and the serpent picks up on that weakness, and he drives the wedge deeper. This is when he goes with the big lie. Look at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. He's calling God a liar, isn't he? God clearly said in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, speaking to Adam, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the woman knew that. The woman knew that judgment was to come with disobedience. She knew it. In fact, God's judgment is the one thing she gets right in her first response, back in verse 3, But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So she knows that judgment is there. The serpent's lie is to, one, first of all, call God a liar, and then to deny God's judgment. He says, You will not surely die. He denies God's judgment by minimizing the consequences of sin. This is often the way that temptation works. It would be a pretty lousy temptation if it didn't minimize the consequences of sin. Think of any sin that you have ever given into. In order to make disobedience to God attractive to you, the consequences of the sin must be minimized. 
the judgment must be minimized. Take just as an example, theft. All right? It begins with a dissatisfaction with what you have and a desire for something more. So it's similar to Eve's temptation here. And then you have to persuade yourself that the gain of that coveted item is greater than the risk of getting caught. You have to lessen the cost of sin in order to strengthen the, the, the temptation of that perceived benefit. That's what the serpent is doing here. Get rid of the threat of judgment, or else we'll never get anywhere with this woman. We have to get rid of the threat of judgment, lessen the cost to make the sin more attractive. It is no surprise that one of the first doctrines to go out of the door amongst churches that go liberal is the doctrine of hell. Think about it. If you get rid of the doctrine of hell first, if you get rid of God's judgment first, then we can start chopping away at God's word without any consequence. Now that there's no threat of hell, let's deny God's design for men and women and say that there's no differences and the Bible is antiquated when it comes to these gender roles. Now that there's no threat of hell, let's affirm the murder of innocent babies in the womb and call it reproductive justice. Because after all, women must be like men and men don't have to have babies, so neither should women. Now let's affirm adultery because we all need to follow our hearts to be truly fulfilled. Now let's affirm the homosexuality because after all, love is love and love is a good thing. Now let's affirm transgenderism because after all, God is non-binary and we're like him and did God really say that he made them male and female? That acceleration that we've seen in the last 20 years, that acceleration away from God's word begins with a denial of judgment. Without God as judge, we become judge. That's the position that the, that the serpent is pushing the woman towards. And that's what we see next when the serpent tempts the woman to question or judge God's motives. Look at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. In other words, God's a liar. There's no judgment. Everything will be just fine. And why is God lying, lying to you? Verse 5, here's his motivation. For God knows. That when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The perversion of the truth here is it's kind of odd. It is true that the eyes of the man and the woman will be opened if they eat of the tree. It is also true that they will be like God in knowing good and evil. God says so at the end of chapter 3. Look at verse 22. Not in our text this morning, but it's there in chapter 3, or uh, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, this is after the fall, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Dot, dot, dot. So the serpent's statement is technically true. But it's a perversion. Do you see it? It's a perversion. It's a, it's a twisting of the truth. There is sedition built into what on the surface is a truthful statement. The serpent makes it seem as if God is holding back something good from his creatures. God's not trustworthy. God's not good. God gives some good stuff, but he holds back the really good stuff for himself. Because he's fearful. God's fearful that you would be his equal. God's commands are not life-giving. They're oppressive because God is the oppressor. To be truly free, to be truly divine, you must break free from God's oppressive regime, his oppressive hierarchy. Get out from under God's thumb and only then will you blossom into the divine being that you're meant to be. That's the lie, isn't it? The serpent's ultimate deception is to persuade Eve to see God's good and perfect law as oppressive restraint, withholding the good rather than an abundant provision 
of the good. And once he has deceived her in that way, she's convinced. The hook is set. And the rebellion commences. Verse 6. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. and He ate. Now, is it true that the tree was good for food? Yes, it is. If you look back at Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, it says, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. This tree is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Is it, is it true that it is a, desire, a delight to the eyes? Yes. Again, all the trees in the garden were pleasant to the sight. God made all the trees in the garden good. Is it true that the tree is desired to make one wise? Well, this is the trick. Right? This, is, this, is, this is where we need to be careful. This is where sin comes in. The tree, this tree, is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It will make one wise. That's true. But God has forbidden this as the means of gaining wisdom because God is to be the source of wisdom for his people. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right. So, so God is to be the source of wisdom for Adam and Eve, or Adam and the woman. She doesn't have her name Eve yet. God is to be that source. This tree will make one wise, but it will make one wise apart from God's giving, apart from God's conveyance. It is wisdom apart from God and apart from His provision. That's why the word desire is important here. Desire doesn't just mean want. The, the, the Hebrew word that is translated as desire here is actually the same used word for uh, same word that is translated as covet in Exodus 20. So Exodus 20 verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house desire. Same word. And that's the problem. The serpent has deceived the woman. He's led her away from God as the source of truth and wisdom and had taught her that not only is God a liar, but she can get her wisdom from elsewhere. She can get wisdom without God. So she sees, she takes, she eats. Let me just ask you this. What is her sin here? The simple answer is, is disobedience. But what brought about her sin? That's what we've been discuss, uh, discovering together. She was deceived. And so she became dissatisfied with the good. She was lured into discontentment in her dissatisfaction with God's goodness. Her discontentment with God's provision brought about her disobedience. As James puts it, desire gave birth to sin. Now God made Eve, but God made this woman, God made you and me as people with desires. This is a good thing. Desire in itself is not harmful. Desire and the acquisition of rightly ordered desire leads to delight. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's a good word. Enjoy. Enjoy Him forever. Psalm 37, 4, Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. But sin is born from disordered desires. Desires for things outside of God's provision. Desires for things forbidden by God. And that same longing becomes covetousness when it is disordered. And the problem is that the acquisition of those desires, just as the woman and the man found out very quickly, the acquisition of those desires, those things outside of God's provision, they do not lead to delight. They do not lead to happiness. They do not lead to contentment. Rather, the acquisition of disordered desires leads to despair and destruction and death. 
It's like trying to satisfy your thirst with salt water. And before we move on to the next section, I want us to see two things here. The first is that all of us, all of us, men and women, are vulnerable to being drawn into sin like this. Thou shalt not covet is not a command that is only given to women. It's given to all of us. Desire for things outside of God's will for us gives way to sin for all of us. But I think it's worth noting that from this text, it is apparent that women have a particular vulnerability to this deception. The devil knows it, and he led the woman astray in this way. Men, we'll get to you in a minute. You're not off the hook. So sisters, be aware of this. Be aware of this. Discontentment is an area where the serpent will attempt to drive a wedge in your relationship with God. And that temptation will come in many forms. Your husband is not who you want him to be. The income he earns is not what you want it to be. The neighborhood that you live in is not the one you wanted to live in. Your kids are not living up to what you wanted them to be. Your friends are not who you want them to be. And the list goes on and on and on, doesn't it? I'm sure you could, we could spend the rest of the day thinking of the many, many ways that we are drawn into discontentment. Your discontentment will begin this way. It will begin, just as the woman's did here, with a dissatisfaction with what God has provided. It always begins there. Dissatisfaction comes first, and then it gives way to desires that, when they are conceived, will give birth to sin. Envy, covetousness, bitterness, adultery, all of it begins with discontentment. Men, we are not immune to this. But it's worth noting, God has revealed to us that this is the means through which the serpent deceived the woman. And that does lead us to the next question. Where the heck is the man? Where is Adam? Verse 6 tells us, doesn't it? He says, he is with her. Eve gave some of the fruit to him and he ate. Adam, what's going on? What happened? Why did he eat? Well, the woman was deceived. He doesn't have that excuse. In fact, the Scriptures tell us the man was not deceived. 1 Timothy 2.14, Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived. It's pretty plain. Adam was not deceived. Eve was. And yet Adam sinned. Sin came into the world through him. Not through Eve, but through Adam. The Spirit says this about Adam in Romans 5.19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the one man's disobedience, Adam, by by Adam's disobedience, the many, all of us, were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, Christ's, the many will be made righteous. We are born sinners because of Adam's disobedience. Full stop. Yes, Eve disobeyed, but Adam is our representative king. He is our federal head. Therefore, Adam's disobedience is more consequential. Think of it like this. If, if President Biden says something to provoke China or, or North Korea, and he's known to say some things, isn't he? The consequences are far greater for you and for me than if Jill Biden were to say the same thing to those people. Do you agree with that? Yeah, he's the president. The president's comments may cause a war, but the first lady's comments, well, well they might cause offense. There might be some apologizing that needs to happen. What Adam does affects you and me, men and women, because he is humanity's representative head. His sin was in disobedience. The Scripture's clear on that. But what led to his disobedience? We saw what happened to the woman. She was tempted into discontentment. What happened to the man? We get all this info about Eve, all these verses about her. She was deceived into doubting God's judgment. She doubted God's goodness. She desired the wisdom available to her in the fruit. But for, for Adam, the text only says, she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. That's it. 
That's the moment that sin came into the world through one man. That's the moment that all of history was changed. And it's not even a full sentence. There's no insight into his heart. There's no commentary on his motivation, is there? Nothing. What happened? What brought about his sin? Well, we do know this. We could summarize it in one word. Failure. First of all, Adam failed to confront the serpent. When Adam first discovered that this beast of the field, remember, he's supposed to have dominion over the beast of the field. When Adam first discovered that this beast of the field was up to no good, he should have confronted him and probably expelled him from the garden. But he failed. He failed to protect that sacred place, that garden where man and God meet together. Adam's job was to protect it, and Adam didn't. And he allowed this hostile beast of the field to remain. Secondly, Adam failed to protect his bride. As soon, as soon as the serpent went to Eve, Adam should have stepped in between them. He said, do you have a question, Mr. Serpent? Adam should have stepped in between them and rebuked the serpent, but he didn't. He allowed his wife standing there, watching his wife being lured into sin. It's a failure. Finally, Adam failed to protect the Word of God. As soon as Adam heard the serpent's lies, if he let it get that far, as soon as he hears the serpent's lies, the twisting of God's Word, Adam, the one who had been entrusted with God's Word, had the responsibility to defend God's Word, to rightly handle the truth. In chapter 2, Adam was the one entrusted. Adam was the one who received the command. But in chapter 3, Adam is silent. Isn't he? He did nothing to protect the garden. He did nothing to protect his bride. He did nothing to defend God's honor and God's word. Adam was silent. Adam was passive. He was passive. In the same way, that the serpent's deception lured Eve into disobedience, Adam's own passivity brought about his disobedience. Brothers, listen. Passivity is not a virtue. It's not a virtue. The passivity of men creates the environment in which sin thrives. Children are led astray from the gospel because of passive men who don't actively train and teach their kids. Daughters end up with worthless husbands because of passive men. Sons become worthless husbands because of passive men. Wives are led into anxiety and stress and they become overbearing and bitter because of passive men. True Christian churches, true Christian churches, outposts of the kingdom of God, entrusted with the gospel and the word of God, become apostate social clubs, devoid of the spirit and the truth, because of passive men. Men without conviction, men without courage, men who fail to act like men. How much destruction has been wrought by the devil throughout the ages because passive men sat back and watched. Brothers, God has not called, He's not called you to be born again into Christ so that you would act like Adam. He's called you to be born again into Christ so that you would be like Christ. Christ was zealous for the temple of God, in the way that Adam never was zealous for that holy place, that dwelling place of God. When Jesus saw the corruption in God's holy place, what did he do? Flipped over tables, drove out the money changers with whips. Christ was zealous and active in the defense of the people of God, wasn't he? When Jesus saw the devil harassing God's holy people with his demons, he cast out demons by the power of his word. 
When Jesus saw his bride, the church, in bondage to sin, he did not stand passively back and watch. He didn't hide behind his career. Oh, I'm too busy. I don't, I don't want to mess with that. He didn't shrug his shoulders. There's nothing I can do about that. Jesus acted. Jesus went to Jerusalem. He confronted. He provoked the powers that be so much so that they wanted to kill him. He wasn't a nice boy. They wanted to kill him because of the things he said. And then he gave his own life over to them for the sake of his bride, the church. That's the action of a man. That's true masculinity. So men, follow Jesus. Not Adam. Follow Jesus. Actively guard the church. God has entrusted the church to faithful men. Men, actively protect your bride. Actively protect your family because God has entrusted them to you. But also, men, you must guard the Word of God. Jesus shows us the way, doesn't He? At the very beginning of His ministry, Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan. Remember that? And with every temptation, the serpent was twisting God's Word. And with every twisting of God's Word, Jesus responded by rightly defending God's Word. So how do we do that? Know God's Word, right? You've got to know it to defend it. So know God's Word. Know what it means. Know how to wield the sword effectively and actively defend God's honor and God's character revealed in God's Word. Brothers, your loyalty is, and sisters too, but your loyalty is to God first, not yourself. So know His Word. Be prepared at all times, in season and out of season, to proclaim it and defend it. Y'all know this. God's Word is under assault right now. Isn't it? Your families are under assault right now. This is not a time to be passive like Adam. If we have been born into Christ, as we have, we must follow Him into the battle. He is the rider on the white horse who's come to capture and destroy the beast. You're his army. Well, our passage began with this unashamedness of the man and woman. If you look back there in verse 25 of chapter 2, the man and his wife were naked and were not ashamed. The passage ends with their shame. Look at verse 7. This is, this is what happened. This is, this is where sin got them. This is what ultimately happened after Adam and Eve ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Well, it's happy naivety no longer, is it? They're naive no longer. Now they know they have the same wisdom that the serpent has now. They got what they coveted. But what has it gained them? Shame. The story begins with Adam and his bride naked and not ashamed. It ends with them knowing that they're naked and they're ashamed of it. And, and, and what do they do? They have this, this pitiful attempt to cover themselves. They sew fig leaves together. Fig leaves, you know what those look like. Picture it. Fig leaves from one of the trees that God had given them. Why had God given them those trees? As clothing? No. He gave them those trees to provide for their nutrition, to provide for their sustenance. Those trees were a reminder of His goodness. And now they can no longer enjoy it, this tree, for its intended purpose. Now they use the leaves to cover up their shame. And their covering is insufficient. If you, if you keep reading in chapter 3, they're hi, they hide from God. They, they've got these clothes on, and yet they're still feeling this shame. It, this, the covering is insufficient. It can't protect them from the judgment of God that is to come their way. There's nothing that they can do to escape the consequences of their sin. There's nothing they can do to escape their shame, their guilt, no matter what they do. They could cover their entire bodies with thick leaves. It wouldn't solve their problem. 
Because you and me and Adam and Eve, we cannot cover our own shame, our sin. We cannot cover our own guilt. It doesn't matter what the sin is, no matter how you've sinned, no matter how great or small you perceive that sin to be. You can't make excuses for it and make it go away, can you? You can't explain it away. You can't minimize it by, well, theirs is much bigger, so mine's very small, so it's not that big of a deal. We can't do that. We're still guilty. You can't make a sacrifice and make it go away. You can't do something good that will reverse the sin or atone for the sin. You can't cover your own sin. There is no man-made covering that will hide your shame. God Himself, in His mercy, must do it. God must provide our covering. And so He does. 1 John 4.10 says this. We'll close with this. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That means atoning sacrifice. That means the covering for our sins. Jesus Christ is our Savior, sent by God, given to us to cleanse us of our sin all the way through and to cover our shame. Because we cannot do it. We bear Adam's guilt, brothers and sisters. We need Christ's sacrifice. Amen? I would urge you, if you've not already trusted in Christ, trust in Him today. Let's pray. Lord God, we love You. We thank You for Your provision of Christ. In Christ, Lord, we confess this morning that we have far greater than all of the abundances of the Garden of Eden. In Christ, we have more than they did. So, Lord, teach us to be satisfied in Christ. May we know the depth and the riches of Christ's work for us. May we know the beauty of having Christ with us. Lord, I pray that we would desire Him above all else and we would be satisfied in Him alone. We ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen.